grab your Bibles and open them to Galatians chapter 6. It's the last Sunday of the month, and as such, most of you have already began to create a list of your New Year's resolutions. Uh, just by show of hands, who's into goal setting or resolution making, generally speaking? Okay? Good handful of you. The rest are sort of disenfranchised with it, I imagine, because you fail so many times at it until you've given up. Well, studies show that making lists and making goals actually help you perform better at achieving them. So I would encourage you to at least create some sort of minimal type of goal. But it's not for everybody. And, of course, also statistically showing that not everybody fulfills their New Year's resolution. In fact, most people give up on their resolutions sometime by the end of January or February, which is not great considering that there are several more months in the year that we are attempting to create goals for. Uh, and that's because a common factor in our reality is that enthusiasm about things don't last very long. All that glitters is not gold, we come to find out, and the energy and the passion and intensity with which we start things, it's not quite there throughout the middle of it. And certainly by the time we're over with it, it's certainly not there at all. See, even for wonderful things, for good things, like reading your Bible and coming to church and for getting a healthy lifestyle and for whatever good things you think you might set for yourselves, enthusiasm for these things will wane. They'll fade over time. The greatest enemy to enthusiasm really is just time because given enough, we'll eventually wear ourselves out or disappoint ourselves and find ourselves leaving off of the goals and the intentions that we started with. It all will fade in time. Just imagine for a second you're looking for a house and the realtor takes you into this beautiful mansion of sorts and the first thing you notice when you walk in, let's pretend you can afford it for a minute, you walk in and you see this beautiful grand spiraling staircase and you say, yes, this is the house that I want. I love this staircase. It's the centerpiece of the house. It's the first thing you see when you walk in and you just imagine all of the parties you're going to throw and how you'll be able to, on the seventh step, give a toast and all your friends and family will be looking up adoringly at you as you give your toast. Or maybe you flash forward and you see your daughter coming down the steps for her first prom and you tear up a little bit. Or maybe you just think of all the ways you'll impress your friends and your neighbors with how nice this staircase is. But in between those parties when you buy the house, and in between those prom and those seasons where you get to use the staircase and all its glander, glander, you still have to use it. You still have to walk up it. You still have to clean it and then take care of it. You have to sweep it and mop it or polish it. You've got to make sure that the decorations on it are just perfect for every season, and it becomes a chore to take care of. And what was once an enthusiastic goal to buy a house that would impress your friends and family, that you would be able to, to serve and be hospitable in this beautiful staircase that could show off the glory of the home now becomes something that's sort of tedious. And now every day when you walk up the stairs, you wish you just had an elevator or just a slightly more simple set of stairs. You could just walk up instead of having to spiral up. And God forbid when you have kids, you have to teach them to use the banister lest they run down and fall all the way down to the end of the spiral. A beautiful staircase like that no longer has the sort of luster it once did. Well, maybe a grand staircase isn't more your speed and a view is. And so in the back of the house, you go out to the deck, and there's a beautiful landscape garden, and there's a view of the city on one side and a beautiful mountain range on the other, something a little bit for everybody. And you fall in love with that view, and you say, yeah, I'm going to buy this house. And imagine just being able to wake up every morning, I'll drink my coffee, I'll get up early, and I'll sit on the deck, and I'll look over this view, and I'll say, ah, yes, thank God for all the bounty and the provision he's given me. And maybe you do that for the first couple days or even weeks you buy the house, but eventually life takes over. And now you're waking up to the alarm last minute to get into the shower so you can go to work. And there's no time to enjoy the view. Or maybe there's too many dishes piling up and so your head is down in the sink rather than up looking through the window. And you become so disillusioned with the view at all that you simply just are no longer appreciating it. Except for every now and then the turn of seasons creates a very beautiful picturesque moment. And you take a moment to enjoy it and you wonder, I should be out here more. You see, the enthusiasm about these sort of things always fades with time. It doesn't have to be a house or a staircase or a view. It can be something like a vacation. You're very excited to go to the beach to 
stick your toes in the sand to sit next to the water to soak up the sun. And the first few days are great. They're fun. You're eating new foods, really just a burger from another place in another state that you pay too much for. <laughs> but you're having fun. But by the end of the vacation, you're tired and you're ready to go home. It's supposed to be a vacation, and yet even the enthusiasm for that starts to wane. Or it could be a new job or career or a project or anything that begins to lose its appeal because in the day-by-day moment of it, enthusiasm fades. This is true also for ministry. As we think back on the last year or maybe the last several years of your effort in serving the Lord at foundation or otherwise, you can sometimes feel the same way about ministry. The enthusiasm you started with reading the Bible, serving others, being part of a church, serving in that church in particular ways, maybe leading others or starting something new in that church. Much enthusiasm begins that process by the end of it, or maybe not even then. The inner joy of serving God and living faithfully on mission together seeps away. And what has taken place is exhaustion, is weariness, is a burden rather than a privilege. Not joy, but weariness. So this morning, if you're like me, you're probably weary. By the end of the year, you're looking forward to the reset button that magically appears in January 1, where you can set all your next year's hopes and dreams on. But the Bible tells us if we're not careful, we'll fall in the same pattern of weariness day in and day out, because ministry and life in a fallen world is hard. And doing the sort of work that the Bible commands us to do is tedious. And we run the danger of looking at ministry much like we look at a grand marble staircase or a beautiful view in our backyard. Something that we can appreciate from time to time when good things happen. When God in his mercy blesses us with new converts or new members or he does something amazing in our midst. And we give rightly praise to him. But the day in, the day out serving each other, the tedious cleaning of the church every other Sunday or every Sunday. They're constantly going back and forth to drop off meals for this person, and then like two weeks later, someone else has a baby. You have to drop off meals for them now. You're still trying to feed yourself. This can get tedious. Add to that the fact that you're sinful, so you're adding your own sinfulness in the midst of it, and add to that the fact that everybody else is sinful, and so they're adding their sinfulness in the midst of it. Life together in ministry and in a church can be very hard, and it becomes weary. Maybe you're weary this morning, and maybe 2019 and 2018 before it, and however many years back, has been a battle for joy and contentment that you believe you've been losing. That at this moment, if you're honest with yourself, you just say, I'm weary. I'm tired. I've been doing a lot, and I've not gotten a lot back in return. For better or for worse, whatever our responsibility of that equation is or somebody else's, we're weary this morning. Well, Paul's final words to the church in Galatia has hope for those who are weary. It may provide some of us who are weary with some encouragement. Remember, the church in Galatia has really had a lot of battles that they've lost. And they've grieved Paul, who has set them up and given them the gospel. And his, his hearing of their testimony and the way that they have rejected the gospel in many ways, have moved away from the gospel, has grieved him. And they've made some serious mistakes in regard to the gospel. They've begun to turn away from the gospel into the law, to listening to teachers who would tickle their ears and tell them that they have to live particular ways that are contrary to the gospel, contrary to the, to the message that Paul and the other apostles have laid down and given to them and entrusted to them so that they may believe and have freedom in Christ. They are binding themselves once again to the law and not to the gospel. And under this burden of the law, they have grown weary. And then they're fighting against the sinfulness in their own hearts and the false gospel that's pervaded around them. They are beginning to grow weary. They begin to believe false things about the law. They're not living in the freedom that Christ brings. And on top of this, they're apparently not kind to one another. They're not living in service to one another. They're not caring for the needs of each other. They're not sharing in the struggle with one another. They're not carrying the burdens of their brothers and sisters. So Paul it writes to Galatians as an admonishment to say, Why have you already rejected the gospel so soon as after I have given it to you? Who has bewitched you, he would say. Don't believe the gospels that tie you to another law. Believe the gospel that I have preached that frees you from the burden 
of weariness that frees you from the law that only means you can earn your righteousness. The gospel is completely contrary to that. And so listen and read along in verse 7 of chapter 6. Paul encourages them at the end of his letter, after he has sort of taught them theologically but also pastorally about their issues, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary then of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are the household of faith. So Paul is encouraging here at the end of his letter to the church of Galatia to not grow weary and in doing good. Recognizing that a year-long battle with the false gospel of, of unbelief and of the law, a year-long battle with their own sinfulness, uh, a year-long battle with inner personal conflicts perhaps in the church, of a, of a sowing of the seed of discord in the body and in the community means that there is a weariness that sets in and the questions begin to arise and doubts begin to be shared about whether this is worth it and whether it's much easier to go back to our other way of life or to spend time with another group of people that's a little easier to love. People like ourselves, people that we like, people that dress like us or like the same music, people that don't rub us the wrong way, people with personality types that jive rather than conflict. Paul just wants to encourage them, don't grow weary in doing good. Now notice he says, don't grow weary, keep doing the same thing, press on. He tells them rather through the whole Bible, through the whole uh, letter of Galatians, you have to change. You, you can't continue on the way you continue on. But in your pressing on for godliness, do not grow weary in doing good. And so in order for us to see how we might also be helped by Paul's encouragement and his exhortation. We have to ask a series of questions about the text and about the gospel and about the passage so that we can see how the answers are worked out toward our own challenges and our own wearinesses, our own fears of another joyless new year. So the first question we have to ask is what exactly then is doing good? If Paul says, don't grow weary in doing good, it begs the question, well, what does it mean to do good? Don't grow weary in doing what exactly? What does Paul mean by doing good? Well, we see in the text and in the context particularly that it is not sowing into the flesh, but rather sowing into the spirit, he says. He says, if you sow into the flesh, you will from the flesh reap corruption. But one who sows, as verse 8, into the spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So so living and doing good means not sowing into our own flesh, which he'll describe here for us in a moment, but into the Spirit. Sowing, that is putting effort, energy, and intentionality into the sort of work that goes along with and is in accord with the gospel and the Spirit that God provides. To see what this flesh-spirit contrast looks like, go up to chapter 5. And in verse 16, a familiar passage perhaps to some of us, Paul lays out the difference between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. He says in verse 16, chapter 5, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There's the first contrast. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desire of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. They're mutually opposed. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those, these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Here's a list. Not exhaustive, but a sample. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what does it mean to sow into the flesh that is contrary and opposed to the spirit that the gospel gives us? It means indulging in all the desires of your flesh that are not tamed and controlled by God and his word. 
If the Spirit comes to bring life and to bring us into godliness by moving us from one degree of glory to the next, to sanctifying us and making us more like Jesus, all the things that are contrary to that are sowing into the flesh. Things like sexual desires and impurities, things like strife and jealousy and these interpersonal conflicts that the church in Galatia seems to demonstrate, like enviness, drunkenness, gratifying the flesh at every turn, dissensions, and all these sort of things. And if you practice these lawlessly, as if you have no spirit within you, you do not inherit the kingdom of God, he says. But then in verse 22, he contrasts this with the spirit. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So what's Paul actually telling us to do? And telling the church in Galatia to actually do? To walk in the Spirit? It means to put the death, he says in Romans elsewhere, the deeds of the flesh. Put the death, the deeds of the body, the, the desires and the passions that rule you as sinful people. You have to check under the gospel. And the Spirit, which is a gift given to you in salvation, allows you to work against the flesh, subduing it, controlling it. You can see the difference between those who are sowing into the flesh and those who are sowing into the Spirit by the character of their life. The litmus test of just these sort of these, these lists help us see who is sowing into the Spirit and who is sowing into the flesh. That doesn't mean that anyone who is envious every now and then is completely without the Spirit. All Christians struggle with sin and sowing into their own flesh. Paul himself will say in Romans chapter 7 that he struggles against the war in his own members. But we need to recognize that though, though we struggle in the flesh, the Spirit has been given to us in order to change us. Not simply modify us, but to radically renew us and transform us into somebody who walks according to the gospel. That's what he means by sowing into the Spirit. To practice the fruit of the Spirit. The first question we should ask ourselves when we read the Bible transparently is whether the works of the flesh or the works of the Spirit best characterize us. Could you say in your relationships, in your family, your marriage, or even in your own private life, that the lists of attitudes and behaviors under the, under the sowing of the works of the flesh characterize you more than the list of the characters under the works of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit? This could be a sobering exercise, but one that's important and one that I encourage you to do, particularly as you begin to shape your new year and set your plans and your priorities for the next year. Consider what list describes you more accurately, and if indeed you have the Spirit, why you would sow into the flesh. When Paul's words are so clear, we must walk according to the Spirit. But Paul's words here are actually the end of an argument that he's been making about the life of a Christian who has been radically transformed by the gospel. He's been given the spirit to enable the power and empower us to live faithfully in Christ. Go up just a little further to chapter 4, verse 3. He's making this argument about the life of a Christian living dependently upon the spirit. Chapter 4, verse 3, he says, We also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That's, that's following the prince of the air. Think of Ephesians chapter 2, gratifying the desires of the flesh. But four, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What's this part of the argument that Paul's making to the church of Galatians? It's, it's that you have been given the gospel of promise. That same promise that was given to Abraham. That he would have a son. And that son would bless the nations. And he believed that promise. And he received righteousness because of his belief. You too are heirs of that promise. If you are in Christ. And because you have been made an heir and a son. You have the spirit of the son in you. And therefore, the lifestyle 
of a Christian ought to be working and walking in the fruits of the Spirit. So doing good, to answer the question, is living fully in the power and the efficacy of the Spirit that enables us and empowers us to an unwavering godliness, a godliness of which we will not grow tired, of which we will not grow weary or dismayed, but one in which we shall continue in resolved faithfulness to Christ. That's what it means to do good. Not simply to provide meals for those who need it or simply to help out every now and then when somebody has a project around the yard. Thank you, Josh and John. But to do good means to live faithfully to Christ in the pursuit of righteousness, not that you provide, but that Christ provides in himself. To do good to one another means to exhort and encourage that lifestyle dependent upon the Spirit, to live fully and faithfully in the power of the Spirit that enables and empowers us to do that. So do not grow weary in doing good. Paul means do not fail to sow into the Spirit. Do not neglect the gift that God gave you in Christ. When he sent his Son, they also sent the Spirit of his Son in your salvation. And so you should continue to live faithfully in the power of the Spirit. In this work, do not grow weary. You may be weary, and it may be because you have sown too long into into the spirit of the flesh rather than the spirit of God. Paul says, change your life, sow into the spirit, and do not grow weary into that work. What's at stake? This is the second question. If we understand what doing good means exactly, the second question is, is why is this important? What's at stake in doing good? He says very clearly eternal life. The one who sows into his own flesh will reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now, he's not talking about salvation by works. He's not saying if you do these things, you'll earn eternal life. Because remember, the fruits of the Spirit are actually from the Spirit and not works of the flesh. And therefore, there's nothing in the flesh you can boast of. But when you live by the Spirit, you will sow eternal life. All those who obey God are children of God. And all those who are of the Spirit, John says, are led by the Spirit. So eternal life is at stake. But in what way is eternal life at stake, really? It's there because of the obedience of faith. We are brought to our final salvation. This eternal life that Paul speaks of is guided and is directed by our obedience, not to a law that constricts us, but to the gospel that frees us and to the spirit that brings about the blessings and the fruits of godliness, these fruits of the spirit that we saw. So we're led through the obedience of faith to our final salvation, our eternal life. So we're not just simply talking about sanctification, the day in, the day out, the gradual progressive process of becoming more like Jesus. That's what the Spirit is doing day by day. But ultimately, the goal, the destination of our sanctification is glorification. So when Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that those he called, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. He doesn't include sanctification in the mix of that. Those he justified, he also sanctified. And those he sanctified, he glorified. He doesn't say sanctified. He goes from justification to glorification. Because the ultimate goal of justification is our glorification. And though he uses sanctification to get us there, the end, the goal, the destination is our glorification with Christ. We don't glorify ourselves the way Christ is glorified, but we receive glory in being partakers in the divine nature, as the Apostle Peter says. The question then for us is not only what is doing good and what is at stake, but then is this our goal? Do we share in the same destination Paul shares in for the church in Galatia? The glory of God and the worship of his saints and the promised joy of eternal life with Christ needs to be the goal and the priority and the destination of churches and Christians if we are to faithfully walk in the power of the Spirit in order to reap the benefits of eternal life. That has to be our goal. We need to be heavenly-minded eschatologically focused, that is seeing the end in view, rather than just simply the the now, the present. What's at stake is eternal life, because in setting our eyes on the glory of Christ and the eternal life we will have with him in Christ, we will live faithfully in the here and the now. 
See, marathon runners aren't chiefly interested or concerned in how many miles they can run. But they're concerned chiefly with whether or not they will actually complete the race. They cross the finish line. Those miles aren't insignificant, but one after another, after another, after another, exhaustion and fatigue begins to set in. You can ask a runner, you can ask me after about half a mile. Do you want to keep going? And every part of my body screams no. But if I want to complete the race, I must continue to cross the finish line. And I'm not, I'm not overly concerned with how many miles I've put behind me, but how many miles are in front of me in order to finish the race. That needs to be our goal when it comes to the Christian life, to live faithfully in the Spirit now so He can deliver us faithfully into our eternal life, which is our inheritance. The Apostle Peter says that we have received an imperishable seed being kept in heaven for us till the day of Christ. So when he returns or when we go to heaven with God, we will receive that inheritance in its fullness and completion. That is our destination. And so is that our goal? Are your sights set there? Paul says that's what's at stake. When you sow into the flesh, you no longer have your eyes on the destination. You no longer have your eyes on the prize, as it were. But you have your eyes set only on your own desires and gratification and therefore sowing all sorts of disruption and corruption into your world and into yourself. And those who sow into themselves will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so, friends, if the kingdom of God is important to you, if it's a desire to inherit the kingdom of God, to be one with Christ in heaven for all of eternity, you must set your eyes onto the Spirit as He guides you to heaven, not into your own flesh, into this world. So, we must do good. And although the work and the labor of doing good may be wearisome, we must not grow weary in doing it because what's at stake is eternal life. The third question, well, then what is needed to do this? What do we need in order to do good without growing weary? If you spent any time here at a church working in ministry, you'll know that it becomes tedious and wearisome. Well, how do you continue in the tedious and wearisome work of ministry, of love and service, of fighting against sin and for joy, but not be weary? Well, Paul is calling here for endurance and perseverance in the fight of faith. The answer he's actually already taught us. That if we have an appropriate and a fitting end, something that controls our desires and compels us forward, no matter how difficult it may get in the present season, we can continue triumphantly into the next. So really it is what do we value greater than our current circumstances? Maybe you can put up with a tough job for a while because you know at the end of 90 days you get a raise or a promotion or you'll get yourself up the ladder and you'll be a manager or a boss or your own boss. Because the work and the worth of that is greater than the current menial tasks you may be asked to perform now. Or maybe you like to, you like to paint or to draw, but the process is actually pretty difficult. But getting to the end of the destination and seeing your work of art is more valuable to you than the difficulty of sitting down and working it out. We need to see what Paul is actually telling us is that eternal life must be more valuable to us. Christ himself must be more valuable to us than anything else, including the disagreements we may have with one another, the desire to, to sow into our flesh, the desire to leave or abandon one another when it is difficult. Rather, Paul says, in order to labor faithfully without growing weary, you must have a greater value placed ahead of you that compels you forward and therefore have endurance. Persevere in the fight of faith because of the value <coughs> of eternal life. See, in those who are persevering in endurance, there is a resolve that is needed in order not to succumb to the weariness of hard tasks. I like to make fun of my sister every now and then. She's a little older than I am. But we were both both in a, in a rec little league growing up. And she was on the, the Indians and I was on the Orioles. And uh, she got her finger. She, uh, she was trying to get a ground ball. And it kind of like hurt her finger a little bit. Didn't crush it. Didn't break it. Didn't even hurt it, John. But she <laughs> cried. And then she quit. And I give her a hard time because she couldn't feel the ground ball. She quit. Now, it's all in love. But... Clearly, she did not care about baseball enough to continue 
and what was clearly going to be something very difficult for her. We see this over and over again, not just in the realm of athletics or in science or in intellect or any other thing, but we see it most needed in the church. We should not succumb to the weariness of hard tasks. And what can be harder than laying our own life down for the sake of another? What can be harder for serving somebody and loving somebody that is really difficult to love? Do you know somebody difficult to love? Maybe you're married to them. I don't know. Nothing is harder. Maybe it's me. Than loving somebody who is difficult to love. Who takes but never gives. Who consumes but never contributes. To do the spiritual good we are called to do, we must have the spiritual grit of Paul and of God's people. We must have an emboldened commitment to the cause of Christ. Above all, to see how this calling is to be worked out here at Foundation, we need spiritual grit with these people in this place. So what is needed is endurance and perseverance and our eyes set on the highest good, Christ himself and a life spent in eternity with him. So the last question we should ask then is what will we do? What do we do as a church or as Christians if we want to continue in the fight of faith to serve one another, to be the sort of church that Galatians are called to be without being weary and tired and exhausted? How do we change right now the exhaustion we feel from years of work and intense ministry into a renewed passion of joy for serving one another? What will we do? In 2020, the year-long sermon series will be focus. Focus because 2020, right? Nice. <laughs> but really, we want to see an intentioned, clear eyes, resolute gaze on the gospel at work in the lives of the members and the individuals here and in Christ. We need to focus. Paul ultimately is telling Galatians to focus on the gospel, to focus on the work and the calling ahead of them. You must focus. There's three things we should focus on. We see here in the text. First is on each other. We must focus on each other. Look in verse 1 and 3 of verse 6, chapter 6. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Again, in verse 10, as we read, as we have opportunity to let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are in the household of faith. And so our focus in 2020 must be on each other. It cannot only be on ourselves. Focus in the church must be on each other if it is to be on Christ. This is what Christ means. With those who follow me and love me, love one another. He says that his disciples will be known for their love for one another. So you must focus on each other. Again, look back at the problems that were happening. Chapter 5, verse 13. Paul describes a little bit of this. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Again, we see in verse 26, do not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. These are sort of the passions and the attitudes that are happening inside the body of Christ there in Galatia. And so if you were to focus truly on Christ... Your attention then must be focused on each other as well. Lest we become conceited and envious and backbiting. We, Paul says, are literally devouring one another, the body of Christ, when we should be loving one another and loving them as ourselves. So we must focus on one another. You should make sure that you are not thinking of yourself as something and others as nothing. This is Paul's admonishment here. If anyone in verse 3, chapter 6 Thinks he is something. When he is nothing, he deceives himself. So make sure, friend, that you are not thinking of yourself as something when you are actually nothing. And that you are thinking others as nothing. 
Because every time you fail to bear a burden of a brother or sister with them, this is exactly what you do. Consider yourself more highly than you think of others. Paul tells you exactly the opposite and what Jesus has also said, to think of yourself as less highly than others. He warns us all throughout Scripture that the proud will be humbled and the humble will be exalted. Think of others more than yourselves. This leads in this idea of community that we're all so obsessed with in the recent decade. Community. Godly, joyful, life-giving community in 2020 will not be a result of the number of times that we will have each other over for dinner or the amount of times that we will get together to go to the movies or hike a trail or read a book or have a potluck. As Baptists, we will have many. (laughs) Or the amount of times we'll get coffee together. These things have their place as significant they may be. But only the gospel and only the real genuine love for one another will supernaturally cause us to step into each other's lives, to carry the tiring load of motherhood, for instance, or the anxiety of depression, or the burden of addiction, or the struggle of a hurting marriage, or the shame of a doubting heart. Only community will be built around such action and not the other way around. If you want deep, life-giving community, you don't first have community and then serve one another. You don't first have community and then love the members of that community. You first love one another, give yourselves to one another, act in love and service and humility to one another, and community is a result of the gospel sense of community we actually have. So focusing on one another is the only way to have true, real community. If you are looking for a community, for a place for yourself to belong, to consume, and to take, you have already missed the picture of biblical community. We must focus firstly on each other. But secondly, we have to focus also on ourselves. He says really clearly here, but keep watch in verse 1 on yourself too, lest you also be tempted. So as we carry and look over the shoulder of another brother or sister and watch out for them in love, we must also care for ourselves. Paul tells us to Timothy to keep guard of yourself, lest you also fall into the snare of the enemy. We have to care for Ourselves. He goes on to say in verse 4, Let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So Paul's reminding you that, hey, you are, you are only going to be responsible for your actions before God. That you will not be responsible for the sins of others. Although you will be responsible for how you care for, love, and encourage your brothers and sisters, ultimately, you will be held accountable for your actions. So do not neglect yourself as you care for others. Now, you may think that you're so messed up that you possibly can't love or serve another human being until you've got yourself straight. But that's the most anti-biblical, backwards gospel thinking that Paul could lay out. He's teaching us that while you care for others, you care for yourself. In fact, the two are actually together. As you care for yourself, you may care for others well. So care not only and focus not only on each other around you, members of foundation, but on yourselves which means a pursuit of righteousness and godliness. It means an intentionality to not fall into the same traps and temptations that you constantly are. This might mean a shift in how and where you serve. You certainly could be burning yourself out, giving yourself away without taking any time for yourself, mentally, physically, and spiritually. But friends, we must remember, we must focus on each other and ourselves. Keep your thumb there in Galatians 6 and just go a few books over to... Second Peter. By a few, I mean several books. Second Peter. Chapter 1. Getting in verse 3. And Peter's beginning his letter to exhort and encourage his recipients. He says that his divine power, that is God... And Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. See, that's the flesh. 
but you've been given the Spirit. Verse 5, for this very reason, because you have the Spirit. This is the same argument Paul is making, by the way, in Galatians. You have the Spirit, live like it. He says, you've been given this very perfect promise. This very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten, just as the Galatians did, that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling in election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail or fall. For in this way you will be richly provided for you an entrance to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the same thing is at stake here in, in Paul's words and in Peter's words. The, the entrance into the kingdom of God, the, the inheritance, the eternal life that Paul and Peter are saying are yours, are kept and are entered into through the obedience of faith that manifests itself in the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and in these perfect picture of Christ-likeness in which we are growing in here in Second Peter. He says that you're not excellent and perfect in these, but these are yours, verse 10, and are, are, and are growing, excuse me, verse 8. If they are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffectual or unfruitful. That is, if they are yours and increasing, you are fruitful. In this way, they will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, friends, you have to focus on yourself. Not in a conceited way. Not in a way that values yourself more than others. But in a way that allows you to care for one another well. So, you must focus on each other. First. Second, on ourselves. And third, you must focus on God's word alone. He makes the, the, the case here that actually paying your pastor <clears throat> is a great idea. <laughs> Verse 6, let the one, this is back in Galatians chapter 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who is teaching. Now this doesn't really mean that you've got to pay your pastor a lot of money. Or that you've got to pay him a full-time salary. In fact, that sort of stuff isn't detailed that specifically in Scripture for us. But Paul's comment here about financially supporting those who preach is really important because it's underscoring the necessity of God's Word and the role of God's Word in the work of the church. The proclamation of the gospel, the edification of God's people through preaching and through the ministry of the Word in which a preacher or an elder is called to oversee is central to the life of the church in such a way that without it, Paul says, there will be no answer to the weariness and no hopeful motivation for doing good and will fall apart. So one of the most necessary ingredients in your failing to not grow weary is if you neglect the teaching of God's word and in some sense practically you shun those who would teach you God's word either by not paying them or not paying them attention. But friends, the greatest gift financially you can give to me is actually your obedience to the things I say so long as they're faithful to Scripture. God's Word is most central in the work of the ministry of the church. And if we are to not grow weary in doing good and service to one another for the sake of God's glory, we must see it through God's Word. And therefore, we must heed instruction from godly teachers and we must revere biblically those whom God calls and raises up among us. We see here that God's word, teachers of God's words are needed, but the reality is that they're very much in short supply. I want to make a call very genuinely to you that if you are a teacher of God's word, that you grow in that calling and step into the calling. You may not have to be a preacher like me or lead a Sunday school or have a whole rack of sermons that you're ready to preach at any given moment. But if you are able to teach God's word, you are called and placed in a body in which you can exhort and admonish one another according to it. All have been given the gift of admonishment and teaching and correcting one another. That's the very nature of the covenant we signed together as a church. To take God's word and apply it into each other's lives in biblical ways. We're teaching one another. 
but teachers are in short supply. Remember what, what the author of Hebrews says as he admonishes his readers. He says, I, I want to go on and tell you some of these things, but you wouldn't understand because you're still in spiritual milk and you need solid food. He says that you should be teachers by now, but instead I still have to teach you. Might that describe some of us who have failed to mature to be the kinds of people who teach God's word? By teach, that means to, to proclaim and to, and to give and to help explain and apply God's word to our friends and family and our brothers and sisters in Christ. You should be teachers by now, but instead you are on, sol- uh, on, on milk and not solid food. We must focus on God's word. That means not only memorizing it and reading it for yourselves, but working to teach it and apply it to others. That's part of the extension of focusing on others and ourselves. It's by doing this on God's word alone. That is our foundation. So the first answer to the question of what will we do is to focus on each other, on ourselves, and on God's word. But the second thing is to fight fatigue. Because although we can look to the future and say, yeah, 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 that's what I want to do. The reality is that if you're like me, you're just really exhausted. And therefore, you need to fight the fatigue that's in your life now before you can faithfully focus on others. It's a lot of alliterative Fs there. That was only half intentional. We have to fight fatigue. You fight fatigue with three ways. I'll do this quickly. First, you fight fatigue with rest. If you're tired, you need rest, simply put. That's just physical anatomy. You have to go to sleep every night. If you don't, you'll be tired. You'll fail to do your jobs well. You'll fail to care for others well. You'll be snappy and snippy with one another. You'll forget things and lose things, and you'll begin to drift into ungodliness, spiritually speaking. So if you are fighting fatigue, you must simply rest. Now, rest doesn't mean taking a pause from church. It doesn't mean taking a pause from being in the life of other people. It means stepping back from the things that are grabbing all of your energy without first pouring into yourselves. Resting in Christ is the answer to fighting fatigue. Primarily, the gospel tells us that we can come to God the Father in Christ through prayer. So prayer is the answer of fighting fatigue and rest. It is the very demonstration of rest because in prayer we ask God to do things that we just couldn't possibly do. I don't ask God to tie my shoes in the morning. I ask God to save my unbelieving father. I don't ask God to help me get dressed. I ask him to move in the lives and the hearts of people to hear the gospel and be saved, to provide in ways that I couldn't help provide. I give all thanks to God, even for the small things, but we need to pray in order to demonstrate our rest in Christ and dependence on the Spirit and the sovereignty of God over all things. And in that rest comes rest from the fatigue and weariness. It centers this on Christ and his purposes and God's will rather than ourselves. It's a relenting of our fatigue and our weariness and our submitting ourselves in rest to God. So we fight fatigue with rest, but we also fight it with peace. We fight fatigue with peace. That is peace that the gospel provides. And so when we come together on Sunday mornings or corporately, when we gather together in our community groups or together and we share and read and, and God's word, we are what the Bible describes, worshiping God for what he's done in his redemption and in in the gospel. We are worshiping. We are giving praise to and extolling, allowing our affections to be stirred by and setting our minds' attention on Christ. And so when we stir our affections, set our minds on Christ, when we worship Christ, the peace of God through Christ allows us to be free from the weariness and exhaustion that comes with a work and experience true peace in knowing him. This is rest and peace together frees us from the fight of fatigue. Thirdly, lastly, we fight fatigue with intentionality. It may seem kind of productive that when you are exhausted, you have to work more intentionally to not be exhausted. But this is a specific kind of work. Just like, just like the Sabbath is a specific kind of rest. It doesn't mean you kick up your feet on a Sunday and watch a football game. It's an active rest in that you pay your mind's attention intentionally to the things of Christ and mercy and the work of God in the world. 
With intentionality, you can fight fatigue by being on mission with one another. As you work together for the gospel, the advancement of God's kingdom, as you work together in serving the needs not only of those here but also in our community, you will not only build the kind of community you want to be as a part of in Foundation and in Fredericksburg, but you will, on mission together, fight the weariness and the fatigue that sets in day in and day out of loving and serving one another. Provided within the work itself is the answer to the weariness of the work so long as we are on mission for God. All of this requires a new heart and new eyes in order to see. So maybe you're here this morning and you're not a believer and you think you are. And the reason you're so exhausted is because you've been trying to fit into the mold of a believer, say the things and believe the things that you don't actually believe. That's a reality for maybe in the size of this room as well as it may be, one or two of you may, may face. That you're not sure if you actually believe the gospel enough to pursue the hard work of ministry and service and love one another and submission to the will of God without growing weary. The idea of this just makes you tired thinking of it. This fighting of fatigue and weariness and doing good to others requires a new and transformed heart. The gospel must be at work in your life. The gospel is simply that Christ became a man. We just celebrated this in Christmas. That Christ, the Son of God, took on flesh, took on the form of a human and became a man. He lived a perfect and sinless life so that our sinfulness would be exchanged for his sinlessness. And upon his death, though he was completely innocent, God poured out his wrath against all unrighteousness and sin and allowed the atonement for our sin to be satisfied by the death of Christ. And when we believe by faith that that was sufficient to satisfy God's wrath, he grants to us not only justification, but the power of the Spirit to continue to fight sin in our lives. And so, friends, if you are looking to fight fatigue and weariness in your life in 2020, you must first believe the gospel, then lean onto the power of the Spirit to empower you to continue to fight sin and fatigue in your life. But look ultimately to Christ to provide you with rest, focusing on each other, yourself, and God's Word. May we not grow weary in doing good in 2020. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are thankful for the truth of these words in the gospel, and we ask that you empower us by your Spirit even now to not grow weary in doing good in 2020. Help us find the answer to our, our confusions and our longings. And as we look, maybe with some pessimism to the next year, would you just revigorate our minds and our hearts for mission? And that over the next several months, as we as a church come together to explore how we can live in the Spirit, sowing into the Spirit, not into the flesh, you would glorify yourself. We need you to do this because we cannot do it on our own. I cannot lead a church. We cannot follow unless you are here, unless you are working in our midst. So, Father, do this by your spirit and in the name of Christ.